there were some other little things that did bother me along the way. And yes, there are scenes could be trimmed and so on. But if you're going to fictionalize things, be careful as to what you fictionalize and what you don't. For instance, when she finally gets Wuthering Heights published, you know, and, and what a big thrill when, when the mail arrives, she opens the package, she looks at the spine on the book. I mean, that is a moving moment. However, when you look at the book cover there, it says by Emily Bronte right on the book. That was not the case. Like a lot of female authors of that day, she published under a male pseudonym, in her case, Ellis Bell. And so to me, that would have made the film even richer. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about Emily and Knock at the Cabin, starting with Emily. Now, when I first saw this, because I hadn't seen a single trailer or anything, I didn't know it was about Emily Bronte. I thought it was about Emily Dickinson. But it is, in fact, about Emily Bronte, one of the three Bronte sisters who wrote books and, you know, became famous, along with Charlotte and Anne. But this was a, I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't this. I was completely engaged with this movie from the get-go. It has all the elements from Wuthering Heights sort of threaded through the storyline about her life. And apparently she was, there's something very goth about her from the get-go when you're watching the movie. They have sort of given her like these dark under-eye circles. She has dark hair where her sisters are lighter. She has a heaviness about her. She's got a brooding nature. She's got a different way of looking at things. So I thought they sort of set her up as what I thought was kind of a Wednesday Adams, sort of a look and feel. Mike, where do you want to jump in with Emily? Well, speaking of narrative threads, um, this film would qualify as a bodice ripper. Um, yes. If, if you're going to talk about romantic literature, the premise for the film essentially is that her lived experience will lead to her writing Wuthering Heights, that she will have a romantic adventure that will get reflected in the principal characters in, in, in the novel. And, you know, and, and the film itself is very convincing as, as it shows that. And yet, you know, there, there are at least two things that have to be noted. One is that you know, the film doesn't really sufficiently allow for imagination, that sometimes writers make things up. They don't have to experience everything before they can write. But that, that's for a writing seminar to talk about. But that, that's the one. The second is, of course, the film clearly will take liberties with her biography because there are some gaps. There are things we don't know uh, about her, her life that we'd like to. So fair game here then in, in a fictional film like Emily to just create that, to, to provide that. For instance, her character, and she, she's incredibly well played by uh, Emma Mackey. It's a really good performance as Emily. I mean, I, I really think that's very strong casting there. But in any event, the character of Emily Bronte will fall in love with a curate, uh, William uh, Waitman, who was an actual historical figure. He, he really was part of her world in Yorkshire in the mid 19th century. So that's factually accurate. There is no documentation of a romance between the two of them. So all the romantic stuff that you see in the film, as engaging as it is, just bear in mind, importantly, that that's all fictionalized. That's all created. It is plausible within the world that we're presented with. And the plausibility is something I would emphasize here. The film was shot in Yorkshire. It's very convincing in terms of the use of the space, very meticulous production design and, and, and the overall direction. It's really, and, and the casting, as I say, in all the principal roles is really spot on. It's really very well packaged. And I'm saying that as a big compliment. It's, it's really a, a handsome film. It's a good looking film and totally engaging. So even though I think, you know, I have occasional reservations about some of the premises operating here. So what, you know, the, the film's playing by the rules it's set and, and doing so quite well. 
I thought in terms of the mood that it created, it had that sort of gothic feel, you know, with the foreboding house and the, you know, the sense of impending dread and the overlaying of, you know, the sinful nature by having her fall in love with the curate. But how many scenes, Mike, did we need of women running through the rain in huge dresses? It was like the scene from the piano, but it never ended. Well, you know, on the one hand, I do agree with you. If I were being like a really stern editor, I would say this scene can go and that scene can go. And the film does have a running time of 130 minutes. It is it is a little on the long side for what's there. So we could probably lose a few of those scenes. On the other hand, the scenes themselves are so well realized. Call it picture postcard filmmaking, if you will. But, you know, I enjoyed watching them as scenes. And it always reminded me, it does rain a lot in England, doesn't it? <laughs> Almost any time it started to rain, if a th- something's going to happen here, you know. And so, yes, I, I, I think the film is kind of self-indulgent that way. But isn't that also really, frankly, the nature of a lot of Gothic fiction? It just immerses you in a world and doesn't let go. And it can be kind of relentless that way, much as, as the thwarted passion can be in the film. So um, that, on the other hand, is what ultimately swayed me, that I didn't. it didn't bother me as much as I thought it would or maybe should, because it was just simply well-realized. And emotionally, I was, I was with it at that point. So there are other films I've seen where I'm, I'm really consciously aware of the fact that they could trim scenes. Here, it's like, okay, this could go or that could go. But would I want to be the one with the editorial scissors at that point? And I'm getting at, like, which of these scenes should be cut? So you make a good observation. But that's, again, where as a viewer, you've got sort of like the logical side and then the, the emotional side. And ultimately, I was going with the emotional side here. I thought it was effective in giving you the feel that she had. The world was a dark and dismal place because her mother had passed. And, you know, that's one of the themes is that she really can't move on. And, and, I mean, it's understandable. By the same token, the fact that the message just kept getting reinforced, that she keeps getting caught out in the rain. It made me very anxious during all those multiple scenes, uh, sexual scenes, which, by the way, very nicely shot. You know, you don't really see anything, but it's very clear what's happening. I just kept thinking in the back of my mind, you know, how is she not getting pregnant? And how are you going to explain it if she does? So that worry like settled on me, but it wasn't. And I felt like the the foreboding and the rain kind of led me to worry about what was going to happen to her in that respect. But of course, that that was not something that was addressed. Well, really, in terms of, you got to remember, Emily Bronte had a very short life. She wouldn't have had much time to get pregnant even. She died at the age of 30 in, in 1848. But in terms of your your logical objection there, this is not a movie that's going to present you with a, a medical diagnosis. You know what I mean? It's not going to give you hospital charts or anything. It's an earlier and different world. And, and so uh, we would worry more about, gee, should you use protection, this and that? But, you know, that's not in their vocabulary, at least within the world of this film. She's head over heels in love with this guy. It's sort of an impossible relationship for reasons we could go into. And again, within a gothic romance, you go with that emotional flow. These are the rules of the genre, if you will. You don't stop yourself by way of like logical objection or the fact that, you know, gee, should you engage in this affair because you might get pregnant? Those are mundane and, and very justifiable concerns we have. But within her world, that doesn't seem to occur to anybody, does it? And so that is a curious point. You know, you would think that that would be one of her worries, but her worries are more about, you know, how would her father react to this uh, affair and this and that. And she has her own world of melodrama and it doesn't extend to the kind of medical discussion we're having. Except that the nature of sin was very much prevalent and reinforced, you know, the sermons that her father gave and his, you know, unyielding nature and his casting the brother out for being immoral. So morality is huge and looms always. 
and in what I thought was a Hawthorne-esque way, did you feel like this seemed very much like a Nathaniel Hawthorne story? It seemed to me very much like a Bronte story. <laughs> no, no, again, morality absolutely looms just like the dark clouds in the sky. That's part of that ominous mood. This is a really stern take on religious ethics, if you will. But again, of all the objections raised or concerns raised within the film, the whole concern that you mentioned, well, you know, would she get pregnant, this and that, you would think that would be, but, but it's not, with, because you're more afraid actually of, of somehow you know, an angry God who will smite you for this or that, and not so much in terms of what we would call medical consequences and, and so on. But, but that's where, with a film like this, you really just need to go with the emotional flow. And one reason why I think it does work so well emotionally is that this is the directorial debut for Frances O'Connor, the director of it. Her background is, is what's immediately relevant here. She's known or was known more as an actor and she, in fact, starred in the 1999 version of Mansfield Park. She's done her Jane Austen duty, if you will. And I say that as a compliment in that she knows what's required for that kind of period film. You can quite readily see a career progression going from Jane Austen through the 19th century up to the Brontes. She's well prepped here. She's got her education in hand. And, and that's, again, why I think the film is so confidently made. You know, that's why one reason I enjoy a film like this is I just feel secure in it. I know that they know what they're doing here. And right down the line, there were some other little things that did bother me along the way. And yes, there are scenes could be trimmed and so on. But if you're going to fictionalize things, be careful as to what you fictionalize and what you don't. For instance, when she finally gets Wuthering Heights published, you know, and, and what a big thrill when, when the mail arrives, she opens the package, she looks at the spine on the book. I mean, that is a moving moment. However, when you look at the book cover there, it says by Emily Bronte, right on the book. That was not the case. Like a lot of female authors of that day, she published under a male pseudonym, in her case, Ellis Bell. And so to me, that would have made the film even richer. The fact that she's so proud as a woman to have published this novel, but she couldn't or felt she couldn't publish it under her own name. Instead here, the movie, because of that emotional load or overload at this point, it puts her name on it, like how proud she is. But Marie, wouldn't it be a richer film if she looked at the spine and she saw a man's name on it, not her own? Well, actually, her sisters did the same, you know. Yes, of course. They, they were all Ellis, but they- We could talk to George Eliot about this issue. <laughs> we could, yes, because this is not something that decent women did, and they kind of get that across. But I think it's sort of, a, you know, in a way that I think is unjust because it's not true, in that it makes it seem like her sister Charlotte is horrified by what she has done with Wuthering Heights. In fact, that's how they open the movie. She's on her deathbed, and- her sister is confronting her about why did you write this book? And characters are all so selfish and, you know, it's a terrible thing. And it looks like Emily's book comes out first. And then after she's gone, Charlotte is inspired to write. But in fact, all three women wrote all the time. And even though Emily's book was selected first for publication, Jane Eyre, Charlotte's book, was the first one that actually was published. So she would have been the one to get the package in the mail with the books first. Yeah, that's a good point. And in fact, Charlotte's character, I think, should be rethought or tinkered with mm -hmm. a bit here because she's presented as a really sort of severe sibling who disapproves. For her, Wuthering Heights must be called Withering Heights, you know, that she's <laughs> she's really not keen about what her sister's doing. And I'm thinking, yeah, but, you know, but Charlotte, you know, you're writing a book called Jane Eyre. You're mm -hmm. doing something similar. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't quite parse. It's not quite, it doesn't quite convince me at that level. And even though emotionally I'm with the film, whenever Charlotte would have an argument with Emily, I always felt that Charlotte wasn't dealt with 
fairly here in terms of the scripting. I thought she was always made to seem almost like the villain within the family, among mm -hmm. the sisters at least. And I thought that's really not fair to her. And it and also just wasn't consistent with, as Marie says, like the publication history. Not only did she know about Emily's writing, she was writing herself. And then who was the first in print? And that's where the film, much as I liked it, does kind of skim along the surface of the relationship. And, and it's a little wobbly in that sense. It, it, I keep using the word richer. What, it, it's a satisfying film, but, but in really much more satisfying, much richer, if it acknowledged what you just said, Marie, about Charlotte's identity. And, and just the fact that, you know, within the family, you don't have to have sister versus sister here. The sisters in many ways are both kind of rebelling against a sort of patriarchal publishing order, if you will. Uh, and why not bring that out? That would have been actually even more interesting. Actually, the fact is that Mr. Rochester in uh, Jane Eyre is somewhat similar to the Heathcliff character. You know, just this brooding, moody, in Mr. Rochester's case, older. Uh, I don't know. It seems like a, an amalgam of the curate that we see in this movie and the father who's very severe, that kind of Hawthorne-esque presence, and a little bit of the rogue in the brother. And that character was also, I thought, sort of interesting in that he doesn't have a presence in the Bronte literary, you know, canon of stuff that the family produced. But he's obviously very talented and, and charismatic. And there's a relationship between him and Emily that I couldn't quite decide what they were trying to get across there. It almost seemed to border on obsessive. I couldn't quite figure it out either, but I, I was intrigued by it. Let's put it that mm -hmm. way. They're all psychologically troubled in ways you and I have been talking about. And the fact that the brother, Grandma, is really troubled. And the father is so disapproving in that in that stern moral sense. And he'll be essentially sort of like exiled from the family there. And even though I, I can't entirely explain the dynamics of the sibling relationships, just as you were kind of trying to parse this and figure it out, that held my interest there. And if anything, maybe if they had cut some of the scenes of women in long dresses running outdoors in the rain, you know, they could have, if they cut like four or five of those scenes, I would like to see more scenes with Bramwell, either with the siblings or just by himself, because he's an interesting character. Because mm -hmm. it's a reminder that, you know, in this Victorian era, there were people who didn't quite fit in whether they were addicted to something or just somehow estranged from the family, almost like societal outcasts. And that could work quite well within the, the, the gothic strictures of, of the story structure here that, you know, here's a character who is really disturbed, really an outsider in some ways. That's quite compelling and, and quite tragic, actually. I would like to see more of that in the film. You're right. I want to also mention, you know, you mentioned Francis O'Connor. I want to say that I think you know, rather than get the standard male gaze that we usually do when a man is behind the camera, I thought this had a different look to it just because of the way she shot certain scenes. You know, the, the love scenes, for example, not a whole lot of nudity. The scene where Emily is, is hanging up the wash and her brother, you know, sneaks by to see her and rather than have them see each other, they're communicating, you know, with the sheet in between them just really sort of evocative, emotional ways of dealing with things that it would have been different if I think if, a, if someone else was directing. It's a really interesting point you make. And whether we, we could talk for hours about the male gaze, the female gaze, what have you, however you want to account for this, my favorite scene in the film actually is the one you just mentioned. Because she's really just out like hanging the washes, they say, right? She's got the, the, the white sheets along the line and the brother comes up on the other side and they have their faces pressed to the sheet on either side. And what a wonderful way to stage the scene. Uh, I mean, it would be a, a worthwhile scene in any event, but but the fact that, you know, there's that sort of like cloth wall between them, translucent, but not completely, that is really engaging. I mean, that was actually, you know, I would say even like brilliant in terms of how you would stage a scene, because you rarely see something like that. 
first of all, that it was immersing you in like, you know, a, a mundane daily task like that, that she would be doing, right? But that something more momentous could be discussed that way and not just discussed, but her domestic duties are intervening as well. So why not literalize the, the metaphor that way? And that worked incredibly well in that scene. Especially the way they ended it, where they pull back and you see that the brother's gone. So he either disappeared very quickly or you're thinking, Maybe she just imagined that because, you know, she's just got this fevered imagination and obsession. So, you know what I, happened to him there, Marie? He went into a Victorian multiverse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you what happens in the a Victorian multiverse. It's raining all the time and you're wearing a huge dress. <laughs> <laughs> the alternate title for the film could be Stormy Weather. <laughs> <laughs> so now let's move on to Knock at the Cabin, which is based on a book called Cabin at the End of the World, which I read. And I want to say, first of all, that I like the movie better because it has a better structure and a more satisfying ending. It doesn't leave you with an ambiguous idea at the end of what was that that I just watched. Now, this is, you know, anytime you're going into an M. Night Shyamalan movie, you know that there's going to be something creepy this way comes and that it delivers. So, Mike, what were your thoughts initially about Knock at the Cabin? Well, thinking about the director, I went in with a sense of dread, not just that I'd be scared <laughs> by the movie, but scared by the director, because, you know, he, he's known for having what I would call preposterous premises. And the thing is, like, sometimes in his films where it really does bother me is he'll have ridiculous plot twists at the end, right? Like the big reveal, the big... And after all, it becomes so predictable, kind of knee-jerk cinema, right? It's like, oh, what, how's he going to end this one? To its credit, this is a film that does have a ridiculous premise, but it stays true to it and it just sort of follows through on it to a greater extent than I thought it would. And props to the film that way. The premise basically is, you know, would you kill somebody within your immediate family circle if you knew that killing that person would save the rest of the world, basically? And it, it, it touches on what is, a, a you know, sort of a venerable issue in philosophy classes, namely what's called the trolley problem. Trolley problem mm -hmm. is this. If you're driving a trolley, and you know there's somebody up on the tracks ahead and you might kill this person, you know, horrible, prevent it, hit the brakes, don't do it. But if somehow philosophically, and don't ask me to explain the metaphysics here, much less the physics of how trolley cars work, but the issue is this, what if you knew that by hitting and killing that one person, you could save the lives of five other people on the adjacent track, because otherwise they're going to be killed. And so again, it's always that issue of what would you do in a situation like this? Fortunately for me, though, I've got the driver's license. I haven't driven a trolley and I've, I've tried to avoid this problem as much as possible. <laughs> this is a film where the premise is there is a family in a remote cabin, hence, you know, the, the knock at the cabin door thing. And we'll talk about these several characters, but they're all convinced that the, the end of the world is imminent. The apocalypse is near. The only way to prevent it is if within your family, and who knows why this, you know, but within your family, you know, you have to decide, sacrifice this one or, or that one and, and say, save the world there. Now, what I also found, so part of me says, oh, brother, but as I'm saying that, I think, you know, but once it sets that up, it actually is, you know, involving, it really holds your interest at, at that point. And one of the things that holds your interest is the nature of this family. There's going to be a child at risk. How can there not be in a film like this? But in terms of parentage, it's two gay dads. And, 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 you know, a very happy couple and they've adopted the, the child and so on. What I found interesting about the film was the fact that increasingly in, in American films, we're getting things like this. And it's still notable enough that you and I are talking about it. 
but I'm hoping we get to the point where we don't have to talk about it in quite the same way. But 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 since we still need to, the fact that it's presented as a normal, happy, you know, family at their their cabin in the woods. And and what's interesting, furthermore, is the film having established that as the family unit doesn't really make that big a deal of it. There is some discussion of it, as in like, well, of all the families you could have singled out. Why did you come to our cabin in the woods? Would you have gone to a, a heterosexual cabin in, in the woods? Well, you know, and that does get some discussion, but fundamentally, as the film goes along, it's not really an issue in the film. And I think that's a good thing, actually. What do you think? Yeah, I thought the same thing, but then they do bring in, there's a reason why that's part of the plot, you know, which they get to later in the movie. So they drop the seed early so that when they come to that part later in the movie, it makes sense. To the extent that anything makes sense. I mean, to the yeah, extent that anything makes sense. They're, they're, yeah. they're, that, you're absolutely right. It, you know, I like the movie less at that late point because it starts to explain some things there, which I think, frankly, would be better left unexplained. Because when you try to explain them, and in fact, just the other day in a class, we were watching Hitchcock's The Birds. And I was saying, well, you know, the birds are attacking humanity for reasons known only to the birds and to God and to Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock never bothers to explain it, right? It's just, the, it's the given in the film that the birds are attacking humanity. What I liked best here was the fact that for whatever loony, crazy reason, you know, the world's about to end, but your family can, can save humanity if you sacrifice one of its members. I like that as it's just a, an absurd premise, but follow through on it. What I did not like was what you just mentioned, namely towards the end of the film, it tries to provide what we'll call backstory or explanations. And, mm -hmm. I, and at that point, it was like, for me, hooey. It's like, don't even bother. Just keep the movie going on its trajectory. So yes, you're right. It does try to explain that late in the game. But for me, what was more enjoyable were the earlier scenes where it is that family, two fathers trying to protect their child as the bad guys are not only at the door, but then inside the door and let that play out in a more or less plausible way. Now, I thought the opening was interesting in that the little girl is outside catching grasshoppers because she wants to observe them and take notes. And I thought, oh, what a great way to set this up because now you've got this family trapped inside the jar of the house and, you know, here come the predators. and Here we are watching what goes on. I thought that was an interesting thing to set up as, you know, the overarching, you know, thought then sort of gets filtered down into the, the characters. Loved the little girl, thought she was just an absolutely wonderful character. But you know what? I felt like I'd already seen this movie before I saw it partly because I watched, I read the book, but also because they have been promoting this relentlessly. And I've seen the preview probably 20 times. And you know, Mike, the preview gives you the whole movie. That's one of my biggest gripes is that those trailers, those previews tell you far too much. They should be teasers. They mm -hmm. shouldn't tell you as, as much as they do. But in terms, of, I do like that initial encounter that you mentioned. Why I like the early part of the film more than the latter half, let's put it that way. The girl, adorable child, she's out in the woods and the stranger comes up and he's very ominous looking. To me, it reminded me of, you know, in the original Frankenstein from 1931, when the little girl's playing by the lake and Frankenstein's mm -hmm. monster comes up to her, the innocence confronting the menace there. I mean, the scenes are premised differently, I realize, but the fact that you have this child of, of, of innocence and this looming stranger, that kind of a thing. And the film, again, once it gets into that dynamic, it does genuinely like keep you on edge as you watch it. Late in the game, this director is this director. Things just sort of spin out of control a bit there. And, and you alluded to this before with, well, here's the backstory. Here's why, yada, yada. That's the point where like the, the house of cards almost collapses for me, you know, at that point. And you do see like on their television set in the cabin, you see what things that are happening around the world. But to me, it's just a lot of hooey at that point. OK, earthquake here, volcano. They're no, not volcano, but volcano or whatever the equivalent that the world's coming apart. And it's just like it's, it's too much for me at that point. And I, and I find myself 
smiling and almost giggling in a way I really shouldn't be at that point. No, I'm getting at that. I'm, I'm sort mm -hmm. of dismissing it even at the point where I should be most tense. I'm actually starting to giggle a little bit. How about you? Yes. And I, I, I was thinking about the comment you made when we were discussing the Ant-Man and the Wasp and the quantum mania, where you wanted the world to have a set of rules that made sense. And that's one of the things that I thought was a problem here, that once the, you know, the people are predicting the apocalypse show up and they're in the cabin and they're threatening people and doing their thing, I couldn't figure out the rules because I didn't understand what was actually compelling them to do the things they do to the people in the cabin and to each other and to whoever they'd met before they got to the cabin. I wanted a structure and I think not having it was what made the movie seem engaging. Like maybe you're going to figure it out and find out, but you actually never do. That really bothered me. I agree with you so strongly here. The fact that you want to know what the ground rules are, the world's going to end. And the film at that point, the word I would use is it's so arbitrary. Mm -hmm. It's just like, well, whatever, you know, do this or don't do that. And, and to me, at that point, I just don't care any, anymore. And, and so that's a problem I've had with this director throughout the career is that sometimes it's such a Looney Tunes premise. And then the whole movie itself sort of goes off the rails. And I think this film does sort of go off the rails. So by the end of it, it's ultimately like really lightweight. It's, re it's really, it should have a lot of weight at that point, but it's really kind of lightweight and just silly. Just like, like I, at that point, I, I'd be happy to have the world end just so the movie would end. <laughs> now, one scene I really did like was at the end where they reprise the Boogie Shoes song because you see it early on when they're it's all singing in the car. And then later, I thought they used that to really good effect to show, you know, how things that have transpired have affected a couple of the characters. Yeah, you know, I, I would disagree in the sense that, um, you know, if the world's about to end or seems like it might end, should we have a cutesy moment right there? I don't know. I think I'd still be in panic mode or something or just a nervous wreck. But see, this is where a movie like this ultimately just sort of it doesn't even quite believe itself. See, that's where, it, for me at least, just it, it goes for an audience-pleasing moment, but it's kind of a silly, goofy thing. And to me, I'm already shrugging off the movie. Now it's like the movie itself is shrugging itself off. Well, like I said, I thought the way they handled the plot and the story in the movie made more sense and was more satisfying than the book. But I don't know, Mike, is it all right to do that? They really changed the story significantly. Different people survive than you see in the movie. Yeah, but you know what, Marie, we're not talking about canonical literature here. So, <laughs> so, so if it were a certified classic of a book, I would, I would agree with you, like should Anna Karenina die or not, you know, with the train, you know, we're not talking about that. For a pop culture book like that, I don't want to like totally dismiss it, but it doesn't matter that much. I'm getting at like, I mean, I have not read the book, so it's easy for me to say that, but even if I had read it, I don't think I would get be up in arms because they changed something that way. I don't think that this particular book would be considered sacred text. I do think, though, it, it does succumb to the Hollywood ending that people expect. Some of the things that happened in the book would not be acceptable in a Hollywood movie. That is a very good point that you make. In other words, if you're going to take a really potentially very tough premise, well, really stay with it. But here they, they too often go for a sort of cutesy treatment of it or totally arbitrary treatment. And it's just like they don't have the courage of the ridiculous conviction. You know what I mean? They don't like fully follow through with it. And I agree so strongly on that point. Like it, just don't do the film then unless you really want to see it through. If they did that, it probably would be less successful commercially. And so pragmatically speaking, what do you think? I mean, I think they realize that you need the more conventional Hollywood ending. The world's been saved, the family restored. And I'm not think, I don't think I'm spoiling anything by telling you that. Well, people are going in expecting the apocalypse and violence and it, it does, you know, absolutely um, hit those notes, but it also does, it tries to do other things. I don't know that it does them all successfully.
it is, you know, your basic nail biter movie. And if you just listen to the music, you know, when the jump scares are coming because, you know, they signal it like a mile away. So the last thing I wanted to mention, Mike, to see, get your take on it is I was really quite taken with the whole grasshopper thing at the beginning and, you know, the sort of macro micro, you know, view of things, you know, as, as human beings, we're bigger than the bugs. So like we can get them in the jar, but we don't ever come back to it. You know, what happened to them? Did they just end up, you know, dying in the jar? You know, you don't even get like the bug's eye view of things as they're going on. It's sort of a, I don't know, maybe that'd be just be too hokey. Well, again, that's another example of how the first half of the film is more satisfying than the second half, because some interesting ideas are set up and then they just sort of, you know, arbitrarily are let go. And it just gets caught up in, in you know, the world's about to end. Let's have some horrific footage, this mm -hmm. and that. We need a tacked on happy ending. It falls into genre convention at that point. Well, that does bring us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other podcast at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Pandora and Spotify. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.